I just would like to thank the, the worship team and the tech team. You know, we come here, our, our goal as, as uh, uh, musicians, singers, instrumentalists, as the tech team, the ushers doing their job, uh, greeters, is to, is, to, is to help create an environment that is seamless, that just flows, and so there are no distractions, nothing pulling us away so we can truly focus on the message of the worship as we're worshiping and the Word of God. And I want to thank the worship team uh, for the incredible job they do week after week and, and the tech team that keeps this happening, the sound, everything. So uh, I want us to thank them. Would you do that with me? Thank you. We never want to take that for granted. On July 4th every year, we in America celebrate a very special historical event. It's called the 4th of July, the birth of our country. And we celebrate in many different ways, family get-togethers, picnics, barbecues. But if we are to name one part of the celebration most often associated with the 4th of July, we would all say fireworks, fireworks. Now, we experience the 4th of July with different types of fireworks. Some like their fireworks to be safe and sane. You know, safe fireworks like twizzlers and sparklers and whistlers and screamers. Nothing too loud or too powerful. They're safe enough to set off in your neighborhood street or in the cul-de-sac where you live. The more adventuresome will probably throw in a bottle rocket or two. Others like a more robust expression of our Independence Day and will drive even great distances to buy the illegal fireworks, the real fireworks with the rockets and the M-80s and the cherry bombs and those kinds of things. Well, in 1973, a few days after the 4th of July, I was in upstate New York working at a summer camp. And I was taking a day off with my friend, and I found that near the end of the day, as we were driving back to camp, that we had some packets of black cats. You remember black cats? I haven't found it for a long time. They, were these, they weren't terribly destructive, but they were loud. They were, they were great fireworks. They were left over from the 4th of July. And we were driving back to camp. We decided to have some fun. All along the road, as you see on this, and you see it around here too, there, there were neighborhood bars. And we would drive through the empty parking lot of a couple of bars that were emptying out of patrons and somewhat inebriated. They were hanging out by their cars and motorcycles. And, and we just lit one fuse and threw it and took off. Bang, bang. You know, it was a, you know everybody's kind of, what's going on here? Then we did it at a second one. We did two bars, and then we headed to one final spot before heading home. Now, this was 1973, so I was 20 years old. So don't blame me today, okay? It's the same, same scenario. Bar patrons hanging out. I lit the fuse to throw it, only this time my friend who was driving the car jerked the wheel just as I was throwing the pack, pack out and hit the inside of the window and bounced back in the car. Talk about experience, fire, experiencing fireworks in a whole new way. The more they exploded, the faster my fan, friend drove, and I just, I just dove into the back seat. About 30 seconds later, a few burns, and a lot smarter, we rolled out of the car in fits of laughter and said, I guess we deserved that. <laughs> well, whether you like safe and sane fireworks or big booms or huge fireworks shows for the 4th of July, we all have our preferences for degrees of danger and excitement. In some ways, our approach to our faith, our Christian life, can be compared to our approach to fireworks. Christianity is a 
powerful, explosive, life-changing force. But some like to try and keep it safe and sane, controlled, easygoing. While some, the more adventurous among us, love the fanatical, the explosive, even the dangerous side of Christianity. Well, today we're going to talk about dangerous Christianity and what that means. I grew up in a church that, like most evangelical churches of the day, loved and valued the Bible as the Word of God. And we all had a desire to make a difference in our communities. We were good people in good churches. We were respected and we were nice. We were nice. There are some general characteristics of the faith in those churches of this day. And as I look back, three in particular stand out to me. Characteristics of our faith. Number one, we were sincere but safe. Sincere but safe. We believed sincerely but did not want to do anything outside of the norm. We wanted to be safe, first of all, by knowing for sure that we were going to heaven if we died. And we didn't want to do anything that could jeopardize our going to heaven. So we created boundaries and rules defining very clearly who was in and who was out because we wanted to be safe. At the beginning, this was defined as holiness, but it quickly degenerated into something called legalism. And if we would be honest, pride. Secondly, our faith could be described as committed but not fanatical. Committed, but not fanatical. We were committed in our own quiet way, but we never wanted to be perceived as fanatics. We were respected Christians in our communities and did nothing to jeopardize that. We were not fanatics and we definitely were not emotional. No one wanted to get too excited about God. And it fit my heritage, of course, because I was Norwegian. Thirdly, my faith was what I would describe as faithful, but not bold. Faithful, but not bold. We would stand up for our faith of attack, but would never aggressively propagate our beliefs to someone else. Only missionaries did that. Faith that was more passive than assertive. It was private, not really public. Does that sound familiar to you? A faith that's sincere, but safe. Committed, not fanatical. Faithful, but not bold. And I can't put my finger on exactly when, but I began to grow dissatisfied with this sanitized, safe belief system. I read in the Bible about men and women who were fanatics for the faith. It seemed like the fanatics were the ones who shook things up and made a difference. They caused positive change. And I began to hunger for a more robust and active faith. More of God, more of his power, his presence, and his person. I longed to see in my lifetime what happened in the book of Acts. I no longer wanted safe Christianity. I wanted dangerous Christianity. Dangerous in the sense that I could not control the course of events. Someone greater, God was behind it, animating it. And as I studied and searched and prayed, seeking God, something happened. I can't describe it. I can't prescribe it. It's different for each and every one of us. See, God works in each of us in unique and special ways. I, I prayed that God would empty me of myself and fill me with his Holy Spirit, that he would give me power to make me dangerous, a threat to complacency, a threat to the ordinary, a threat to the darkness and the evil around me. God met me and did something extraordinary. You can call it whatever you wish, 
It doesn't matter. All I know is that I was changed. God took this safe, sane, ordinary, committed Christian and turned my life upside down. And I've never been the same since. Jesus had a group of followers, about 120 in total, who fit this same narrative. They were sincere, but they were safe. They were committed, not fanatical. They were faithful, but they were fearful. They were not bold. And last Sunday, we read that Jesus left them on top of a mountain in Galilee, and he told them to wait. Wait for the Holy Spirit. And I want us to join him today as we look at Acts 2. Acts, the second chapter. We're going to read the first 21 verses of Acts 2. Acts 2, 1 to 21. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians and Medes, Alamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Then Peter stood up with the eleven and raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews, all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk as you suppose. It is only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. We looked at the last Sunday, Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood, before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We have seen some incredible displays of power in our day. We've seen exploding volcanoes, devastating tsunamis, horrific hurricanes, spectacular wildfires, even exploding nuclear bombs. But there's nothing in history that compares with this particular event. And it's an explosion of the power of God as he breaks into the lives of men and women, shaking the world to its very core. What the disciples of Jesus had experienced under the ministry and teaching of Jesus was about to explode into a fire that would envelop the entire world. This instantly became dangerous Christianity. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twelve. 
For the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing, and forceful men lay hold of it. This was not safe and sane Christianity. This was dangerous Christianity. Now we, for too long in America, have been a church concerned about safe and sane. And the question is, where are the difference makers? Where are the makers of history? When we look at the text today, we find that it was the day of Pentecost, the Jewish celebration that was held the 50th day after Passover. Jews within 20 miles of Jerusalem were required to attend this festival. Hundreds of people also were there from far and wide coming to Jerusalem. Jesus had told his disciples in Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Power to live your faith, power to be witnesses, power to have something more than a dull religion, power to move from safe Christianity to dangerous Christianity. Now the followers of Jesus were not always prepared or ready for the release of the power. God had to do something to prepare them. God was not going to pour out his power prematurely on a group of people that were not ready because if they weren't ready, they would probably misuse the power. What was God's preparation? What was the preparation for power? The first dimension of preparation was unity. Unity. It says they were all together in one place, which denotes a unity in heart and purpose. Why does the church in America seem so powerless today? Why are we so powerless today? Because there's no unity. We stand divided. We, we have differences in doctrine and worship styles and priorities and vision and mission. We have competing pastors and competing churches. We compare and we compete. We covet other things. There's no unity. There's also a problem with unity within individual churches. Now today is a very important day in the football world of Wisconsin and Minnesota. The Minnesota Vikings and the Green Bay Packers play at 7.30 tonight. So those of you leading connect groups where have the training, we'll get to the point at about 7.30 for fellowship time. We may be able to see kickoff, but that's a, that's a whole different priority. We spend our Saturdays and Sundays in fall watching football. What do we see in football? We see unity. Unity. Eleven guys working together to get a pigskin ball over a line more times than their opponent. And eleven guys trying to stop them. And if one guy, just one, decides to do his own thing, what happens? It disrupts the unity. The lineman makes up his own blocking assignment. The wide receiver runs his own route. The running back runs where he wants to run. The cornerback decides he wants to make his own cover assignment. Just one guy, one out of eleven doing his own thing. What happens if they're out of sync? You lose the game. Unity. There must be oneness of purpose and unity in any endeavor. And we see it every week in football and basketball. We see it at jobs. We see it in teaching. We see it in all kinds of things. But do we see it in the church? It's important that we value every person and every person's unique contribution and assignment in the church. Romans 12, 3 through 6 says... Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body and many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. 
We're all different. We're all unique. We're all important. All part of the same body. All working together. No personal agenda. No selfish motives. All support. It's called unity. Unity. And God can do anything, but he cannot or will not work through a fragmented, divided church. And there are hopeful signs around the country as we see cross-denominational cooperation. We see other things that, that are happening around the country. But also, we need to be in unity within our church. Our church. The second aspect of preparation for power, God's not going to pour out his power unless there's unity. The second part is expectancy. Expectancy. In Acts 1, he said, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised. There's an expectancy. You heard me speak about it. John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Expectancy. Now, what do you expect from God? Do you expect the ordinary? Do you expect the usual, the expected, the safe and sane? Or do you expect the dangerous, unexpected, powerful, unpredictable, the life-changing? Expectancy is the essence of faith. Looking to God. Expectancy. And the third aspect of power preparation is emptiness. Emptiness. Now what do I mean by emptiness? Well, our lives are so full. We're full of ourselves, our own attention, our own concerns, our own agendas, our own priorities and passions. It's natural. It's the first person you think of when you get up in the morning, you look in the mirror. Who is it? Me, it's all about me. Oh, I didn't get much sleep. Look at me this morning. Or we're filled with other people, their concerns, their agendas, their expectations. While we need to be filled with God, we're filled with everything else. Our lives are so full of everything else instead of God. These 120 men and women in the upper room had experienced something that emptied them of self. Something called failure. It was failure. Peter denied Jesus. Some ran to save their lives while Jesus was being executed. They all deserted Jesus except for, for of course, a few courageous women. Just praise God for courageous women. That's a whole other sermon at another time. Emptiness is what is needed. So there's some space for God to pour himself into. We become so self-sufficient, we don't need God. We become so skilled at doing church that we can pull it off whether God shows up or not. We can run our services, we can do this, we can do our programs and everything we need without God. We cannot, in reality, live our Christian life in our own strength. And when we come face-to-face with that fact, then we're ready, ready for God to move us from safe and sane to dangerous. So what happened then? What happened then? And what can we expect today? We see power released. Power released. Verse 2, it says, Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. First we see some visible manifestations. These are the things they, they could actually see or feel. There was the sound of a violent wind. Now, wind represented the Spirit of God for the Hebrew people. When they talked about wind, when we read about wind in the the Old Testament, it has to do with the Spirit of God. Ezekiel 37, 1 through 6, God speaks about four winds that would come in a valley of dry bones. And I want us to read Ezekiel 37, 
says, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, son of man, can these bones live? We look at America today. We look at the church of Jesus Christ, and we look at that dry bones, and we say, can this live? I said, O sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. We find Bones, skeletal remains, and they symbolize this defeated, dejected people of Israel, lifeless, dead, and powerless. And it could just as well represent a family, a congregation, a nation. It can represent you or me. And God said, I will blow my wind on them, and they will come to life. They will live. Jesus talked about wind in John 3. He told a man named Nicodemus, the wind blows where it pleases, you hear it sound. You can't tell where it comes or where it's going, so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Wind, representing the Spirit of God. In an Acts, we find a violent, powerful wind sound. Not a tropical breeze. It was a dangerous wind. Nobody's going to notice a safe, gentle breeze. Now, God uses a still, small voice. But here it was a violent, difference-making wind that filled the whole house. It was so noticeable that a whole crowd came to see what was going on. The Holy Spirit comes rushing into our lives, our empty, expectant lives, and blows out the old, stale cobwebs and brings the new, blows away the fears and uncertainty and replaces it with a love, power, and a sound mind. Wind. The second physical manifestation was tongues of fire. The Holy Spirit is also portrayed as fire. Fire, the fire of cleansing, the fire of judgment. Fire was the symbol or indicator of God's presence. God appeared to Moses in a burning bush as fire. God was the pillar of fire, his visible presence as he led the Israelites through the wilderness. John had predicted, he, Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And it says, these tongues of fire separated and came to rest on each one of them. This demonstrates the Holy Spirit came on persons as individuals. The Holy Spirit came on the entire group, but he rested on individuals. He filled individuals. All of them, it says, were filled with the Holy Spirit, which demonstrates that God has a unique plan and purpose of being filled with the Spirit for each and every one of us. The third physical manifestation was verbal tongues. Verbal tongues. Now, we don't know if this type of event has ever been repeated. God certainly can and might have. God can do whatever God wants. The tongues were, that were spoken were languages that the speaker never learned and were understood by at least 16 different people groups listed. It's obvious that this was God's supernatural work. They recognized it. Now, this incident of tongues is different than the gift of tongues that Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians. 
The gift of tongues in 1 Corinthians is a heavenly language nobody understands. It was speaking to God, not man. It was a type of prayer language used privately, which edified oneself. And if that tongue was used publicly, it needed to be interpreted so it edified the whole church. That's a whole other subject entirely. And something we'll go through when we get to 1 Corinthians at some time, hopefully. This incident of tongues, the tongues spoken needed no interpretation, and they were understood by people without interpretation, declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, this was obviously a supernatural event. The visible physical manifestations of wind, fire, and tongues. In addition to these physical manifestations, we had invisible manifestations. What were those invisible manifestations? First of all, there was passion. Passion. There was an obvious heart change in those followers of Jesus. Their actions had passion that captured the attention of those surrounding them. They were convinced. They were passionate. They were believable. Passion. And then there was boldness, letter B, boldness. This boldness moved them into new territory outside the box. They did things they would not ordinarily do outside of their existing character, and they were bold. Has God ever asked you to do something bold? I mean, really bold? Something totally outside your normal character, outside of your comfort zone, outside of the box? Well, several years ago, Judy and I received a phone call from a friend who was flying through Seattle on his way to Alaska, and he had a long layover. So we agreed to meet for dinner to catch up. So we met at a, at a restaurant, really nice restaurant near the airport. The three of us are seated in a booth enjoying dinner, and about 25 feet away from me, there was a very well-dressed, distinguished-looking gentleman in a three-piece suit, eating all by himself. And God spoke to me. Now, not, not in an audible voice, but God spoke to me very clearly, told me, go talk to that man. Well, my, my sense of propriety says you don't go up to a perfect stranger in a nice restaurant and ask if you can sit down and have a chat. So I did what I usually do when God asked me to do something outside the box. I said no. I learned that from Jonah. So you know how that worked out for Jonah. Well, God wouldn't listen. He kept working on me, and I, I made excuses. That's not who I am. I'm Norwegian. I don't do things like that. I can preach the word and talk about Jesus to hundreds of people in one setting, but don't ask me to talk to a stranger of one in a fancy restaurant. God was telling me to do something totally outside my comfort zone. This was not safe. This was not sane. It was It was dangerous. Well, I became increasingly restless and agitated so much that Judy started looking at me and weird and said, like, what's up with you? What's wrong with you? Finally, after fighting and arguing with God for at least 10 minutes or more, I finally obeyed. I stood up and I walked over to his table and asked if I could talk with him. He had this rather surprised look on his face, totally expecting a sales pitch of some sort, I'm sure, but he invited me to be seated. He looked at me expecting who knows what, and I asked God, okay, now what? <laughs> now what am I going to do? God gave me words. We had a short, meaningful, engaging conversation, and I shared my faith in Jesus and asked him 
what he was concerned about because I said, whatever you're concerned about, God cares about that today. I'm not sure everything I said that day, but I will never forget his words back to me. Before I got up and went back to my table, he said this to me. He said, I have a secretary who believes what you do. She is going to be very interested in this conversation. Where did that go from there? I don't know. I have no idea. I've never seen this man since. I, I have no idea why God told me to talk to him. All I know is that I did not have the courage or boldness in my own self to go do that. That was, out, that was dangerous, outside my box, outside my comfort zone. But the Holy Spirit prompted me, and he gave me the boldness to do something totally outside the box. When God tells us to do something outside the box, we need his power. We need his power. Safe can become dangerous, difference-making by the power of the Holy Spirit. So what is God asking you? What is asking you to do that can only be done by the power of the Holy Spirit? Is God asking you to do anything that can only be done by the power of his Holy Spirit? What was the difference between Peter the coward who denied Jesus and Peter the bold? The Holy Spirit. What was the difference between Thomas the doubter and Thomas full of faith? The Holy Spirit. What was the difference between Paul the persecutor and Paul the preacher? It was the Holy Spirit. What's the difference between Mark the timid and Mark the bold? The Holy Spirit. The marker of being filled with the Holy Spirit is boldness. Boldness. We move from safe and sane Christianity to dangerous Christianity by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not by theological education. It's not the church we belong to. It's not our family heritage. It's not our own gifts and abilities. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit. Visible by the invisible. Physical by the spiritual. External by the internal. Safe to dangerous. Dangerous Christianity. The third invisible manifestation, of course, is power. Verse 4 says, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Verse 12, the crowd also asked, what does that mean? And, of course, Peter's answer is the passage we looked at from Joel 2. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will dream dreams, even on my servants, both men and women. I will pour out my Spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. As I taught last week, before the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit of God was given only to a chosen few, certain people for specific purposes. Now, the Holy Spirit is for everybody, young, old, men, women, all people. Baptizing the Holy Spirit is to be totally immersed in the Holy Spirit. Filled with the Holy Spirit means totally filled, inside and outside. Don't get hung up on the words. There's kind of a water illustration. The fact is simple. It means you're surrounded, filled, and filtrated, or you're soaked with God. Just soaked with God. That describes a state of the fullness of the Holy Spirit. In several weeks, we'll be looking more closely at the six passages in the book of Acts that describe being filled with the Holy Spirit and what it means. That's for a future time. But today the question is, where are you today? 
No matter what experiences you've had in your past, where are you today? The Holy Spirit takes up residence in our life when we're born again. We're born of the Spirit. Jesus told Nicodemus that. But we must continually be filled with the Holy Spirit. Why? Because we leak. We leak. We need to continually be filled with the Holy Spirit. We'll talk more about that soon. So what happened? Before we talk about the results of this day, I want to examine two reactions to this incredible event. These are power reactions. When God acts, people react. And the first reaction was marveling. When people saw this incredible move of God, they had bewilderment, confusion, mixed with excitement, perplexed. They were, had astonishment. They said, what does this mean? These were seekers and inquirers. These were potential believers. And we will always, when God does incredible things, we will always get people that marvel. They look at that and say, wow. The second reaction was shocking. But it was mocking. Mocking. They made fun of them, said they're drunk, they're high on something, they're crazy, they must be out of their minds. These are skeptics and unbelievers. And when God moves and acts in dramatic fashion, there are always going to be two reactions. Always two reactions. There's marveling and there's mocking. There's belief and there's unbelief. Don't worry about people's reactions to the, to the display of God's power. The question is, what difference has Jesus made in your life? In your life? Is there anything in your life that can be explained only because of Jesus? And regardless, people can observe the supernatural with their eyes and they still don't believe. They still don't believe. One of the most dramatic examples of people who saw the miraculous with their own eyes and refused to believe is when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Many believed, but some said, we've got to kill Jesus and Lazarus too because now Jesus is raising dead people. Everybody's following him. John 12, 10 says this. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. From the account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus, putting their faith in him. He just raised the guy from the dead. They say, we're going to kill him too. In John 12, 37, even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, in their presence, they still would not believe in him. Belief and unbelief. Don't be discouraged if people don't believe. They didn't believe Jesus. I mean, we think about it, man, if, I could, if, if God used me to heal somebody or God used me to do some miraculous thing or you know, help raise somebody from the dead, man, everybody's going to believe in Jesus. Not so much. Different reactions to the power of God displayed. But what's the power's purpose? What's the purpose of the power? Verse 21 says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The purpose is that people would come to faith in Jesus Christ, that they would be born again. The kingdom of God launches an offensive to reclaim the ground lost through the fall. And I want you to notice the great outpouring of God's power, signs and wonders. Salvation did not come after the great display of power. Okay? It got the attention. But salvation came after the preaching of the word of God. Let me say that again. After the signs and wonders, salvation did not come after the display of great power. Salvation came after the preaching of the Word of God. And that's 22 through 36. The Word of God is still the most powerful force in the universe. 
So what's the purpose of this power? Why are we filled? First of all, letter A, relevant proclamation. Verse 11 says, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Our own languages. The purpose of power is to declare the wonders of God in a language that people understand. In a language that people understand. We ask unchurched people to come into a religious-looking building through a lobby we call a narthex, into an auditorium we call a sanctuary, sit on benches we call pews, sing 17th century songs we call hymns to an instrument they've never heard, an organ, and pass a plate full of money, and are they supposed to put it in or take it out, whatever. Then we expect them to come back. We must engage our culture where they are at in a language they understand, relevant proclamation. The power's purpose is that it be relevant proclamation. And you know the people you live around and with and work with and go to school with. People. So you can give a relevant message. Power's purpose, second, is real evidence. Power produces signs and wonders. Signs point to someone, to God. They demonstrate the reality of God. God is real. God is powerful and God is at work. Thirdly, it's to restore a relationship with God, to bring new life. This part of the message is for those of you who have never known God, that God loves you. God sent Jesus to live, to die for you, to bring you back to God. Because it says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The ultimate goal of power is that people who are lost are now found. In letter D, Power is for renewed mission. Power is not just to be enjoyed ourselves. Power is given for mission. You can have the most powerful engine in a car, and if it doesn't propel the car forward, it's worthless. It just sits there. Power must produce movement, mission. The Holy Spirit's power is to produce movement. It's to produce mission. Our mission was to be witnesses. Now, very quickly, I'm going to give you five short guidelines for dangerous Christianity. Five guidelines. Number one, seek God, not an experience. Seek God, not an experience. Secondly, seek the giver, God, not the gift. Letter C, be open. Let God do whatever he chooses to do with you. Letter D, be honest. Am I ready? Am I not ready? Make me ready. And letter E, be balanced. Be balanced. The message of God's word today is not to condemn us. Yes, where do we fall short? Are we powerless? Are we empowered? Where are we? It's a message of hope. It's a a future potential. It's a demonstration of what God is capable of doing, what God wants to do, to move us from safe to dangerous, to, to sane to just a little crazy. And if you are here today and you're tired of safe Christianity and you desire passion, boldness, and power, God is just waiting for you to ask. Empty, expectant, ask him to fill you with his Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you again give us This example of real people dealing with real issues in a real world. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would continue 
to change our lives. Father, that, that we would realize the incredible power that's available to us. Your power is unstoppable. And you're going to use us if we're willing and available. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would demonstrate your power to each and every person here this morning. In Jesus' name. Let's stand, shall we?